I left Olive Hill after high school. My mother didn't want me to go far for college, but I decided to go to the University of Kentucky in Lexington, about an hour and a half away. There were closer schools, but I wanted to get out and see something new. My mom was a controlling parent. My dad left us when I was in high school, and from the age of 15 to 18, I felt smothered. She was overwhelming, needy. In retrospect, I can see what was happening. Her husband left. I was approaching the end of high school. Kids don't stick around in Olive Hill after high school. Not anymore. She was afraid I'd leave her too. And I did, but only just to Lexington, a small to medium-sized city about 90 minutes west. Not a big deal, right? At first, I went home most weekends. But as time went on, and I developed a friend group at school, I went home less and less. Meanwhile, my mom was a very traditional woman. She didn't know how to navigate the new world that was developing around her. She looked out at a world she didn't recognize anymore, and it scared her. And I was increasingly becoming a part of that world. So when I was 20, and some friends were going to New York for spring break, I tagged along. We passed the exit for Olive Hill on I-64, and I looked up at the diner by the exit ramp, where Lisa used to work. It had only been two years since I left here, and somehow, already, I didn't feel anything about this town anymore. Someone in the car started telling a story as the exit sign went by. Do you want to hear a crazy story that happened here? They told it all wrong, but everyone else in the car was spellbound about the ghost story I'd lived through. I didn't want to ruin the story by correcting it. In the years since, there have been virtually no new revelations. From time to time, someone took an interest in the case, but they only did puff pieces, a synopsis of what we already know for audiences who haven't heard the story. To my knowledge, I'm the first reporter to really try to dig back into those three days in July 2001. The thing that always disturbed me about this case is the way the Banks girl died. It's haunting. I, I can't imagine it. It's just walking calmly into a forest while being mauled by a dog. This is Sheriff Robert Isaac Wood. We heard from him in previous episodes. He was the sheriff of Hamilton County at the time of the disappearances. I've always believed that she had an undiagnosed seizure disorder like epilepsy. You know, not all these things are where you just start shaking. Sometimes you just space out. But I'm not a doctor and I really don't know anything about that, but it would explain why somebody wouldn't react to being attacked like that. It would also explain the episode in the cafeteria at her school. Many people have speculated that Lisa had an undiagnosed condition like this, but the pathologist at the State Police Autopsy Lab in Frankfort, Kentucky, disagrees. Alicia McCammond was the pathologist who performed the autopsy on Lisa Banks. So, with the exception of the injuries she sustained from wildlife, there were no other medical abnormalities in her body, and there were no drugs or alcohol in her system. So what do you say to the people that think that she was having a seizure? Look, I can't say for sure that she wasn't. I can say that nothing to indicate neural damage was found during the autopsy. But that doesn't mean there couldn't have been something undetectable going on. 
I'll say this though, if that girl were having a seizure and managed to walk three miles through rugged terrain and to stay upright for a quarter mile after the dog started attacking her, that would be completely unprecedented. So it's possible, but unlikely. So unlikely as to essentially be impossible. Well, I get it. The doctors say it's not a real possibility. I've talked to them too, but a lot of us that worked that case, that saw the girl's body, we all share the same belief. We don't have any special insight into what she was doing. We found her after it was over, but I have never seen anything like that. When you walk the path she took and when you, when you follow along and you start to see the traces of blood and the scraps of clothing, the distance she walked after it started, it just, it just helps me to think that she really wasn't there for it. Even if that's not exactly sensible, it'd be nice to think that, you know, that she, I don't know, that, well, that she wasn't, wasn't scared. The Olive Hill Sentinel, the local newspaper, released journals found during a police search from Lisa's bedroom back in July of 2001. Sheriff Wood believes a Mercy and Light member working for the police leaked them to the newspaper because when viewed from a certain worldview, they appeared to corroborate the claim that she was a spiritual threat to the town. Sheriff Wood thinks it may have been an attempt to intimidate others who didn't share that worldview, a way of saying, this is what happens when you don't follow the right path. There were multiple members of the church working in the police department. It was impossible to determine who did it. Lisa was mandated to spend an hour a week with her guidance counselor at school and a therapist. Those records were turned over to the police, and just like with Lisa's journals, they were immediately leaked too, likely by the same person or group of people in the department. Lisa's young life took a series of turns that led her from the carefree girl playing in the forest with her friends to the girl who walked off her job that night in 2001. We're going to spend some time trying to retrace those steps from the limited information available to us. We have no way of knowing what was going on inside the bank's household, so we have to rely on information that was public knowledge. Anthony Bledsoe seemed to believe that the divorce was the catalyst for much of her trouble, so we'll begin there. Lisa began her life growing up south of Olive Hill in a part of the county made up of large plots of land, known to be a relatively wealthy part of Hamilton County. When she was eight years old, the divorce proceedings began and she moved into town with her mother. There was no public reason for the divorce, but plenty of rumors. None are worth mentioning here. Shortly after moving into town, Angela Banks took Lisa to the police station. She demanded to speak with someone who could prove that the girl she brought with her wasn't her daughter, but was someone else impersonating Lisa. She told the police that the girl couldn't find basic items around the house. Her mannerisms and attitude had changed. She'd begun sleepwalking. Police noted that she'd just moved to a new house and that Lisa probably couldn't find things around the house because she wasn't familiar with it yet. But Angela insisted that it began at the old house where Lisa had lived her whole life. A doctor was brought in to help. The doctor quickly realized he was in over his head and called on the psychiatry department from the nearby Carter County Medical Center, who had experience with patients who had psychological needs. Lisa went to stay with her father for several months, 
who now lived in the Cincinnati suburbs. During that time, her mother was prescribed medication. Lisa attended a semester of elementary school in Newport, Kentucky, before returning to Olive Hill. When Lisa returned to Olive Hill, her sleepwalking resumed. It was largely attributed to the stress of so many moves and adjustments in a short period of time. Lisa's life seemed to stabilize for the next few years. She remained mostly off the radar until her freshman year of high school and the episode in the high school cafeteria. We know more about the incident in the aftermath of Lisa's death, what Lisa discussed with her guidance counselor and therapist, because the notes from those sessions were leaked from the police department after Lisa's death. Lisa had already been on Mercy and Light's radar as a spiritual threat because she didn't fit in with the other kids at school, and rumors that got around to Mercy and Light parents had sparked an interest in her. However, the school cafeteria incident served as the catalyst for Mercy and Light targeting Lisa as their town's primary threat. Lisa described the episode in the cafeteria in a way that sounds like an anxiety attack. She described feeling flushed and experiencing a tingling sensation. She began to panic. Her heart rate and breathing began to accelerate. She described a pain similar to cramping and aching in her lower abdomen. Her arms and legs began to feel wobbly. She wasn't able to keep her breathing under control and began involuntarily gasping for air. Several teachers intervened, and Lisa was removed from the cafeteria and sent to rest and recover in the school nurse's office. This incident made her Mercy and Light's focal point, and in the aftermath of her death, Mercy and Light members in the police department leaked these accounts in order to validate their beliefs about her. After this episode, she did everything in her ability to become invisible. She reported feeling disassociated with herself, like she was watching her life from the outside through someone else's eyes. She felt out of place in her own body. She said she was constantly worried she'd be found out. When pressed to explain further, she didn't elaborate. Notes from her counselor seemed to indicate they believed she began to internalize the things the town felt about her. She was afraid of being found out, not because she had something to hide, but because she was the subject of a literal witch hunt and any perceived validation of that line of thinking would make her life harder. She felt disconnected from everyone around her. Like many kids in her position, she just wanted to be invisible. Lisa's life began about as well as anyone could hope. Before the divorce, her family life seemed, from the outside, pretty healthy most of the time. But it didn't last. Back in college, when I tagged along with some friends to spring break in New York, it was 2005, four years after the summer of 2001. Even then, the story had changed so much in the retelling that I barely recognized it when my friend told it while we drove by the exit for Olive Hill. It was so soon afterward, and it was already an urban legend, distorted and so far removed from the actual events that I remembered from those three days in July of 2001. I was excited about the trip to New York. I almost backed out of going with my friends because I'd just started seeing this guy at the University of Kentucky. But we'd been planning this trip for months, and I felt bad backing out to stay in Lexington with a new boyfriend. So, the night before we left, I told him I would see him in a few days. That was a relationship that wasn't meant to be. I didn't know it as we blew past the exit for my hometown, but I wasn't going to be coming back from New York. Not for almost 15 years. 
Not until now. I've been dividing my time about half and half between a hotel in Grayson, the next town east of Olive Hill, and a hotel in Lexington. I'm back home to finalize my mother's estate, but I've had this project in the back of my mind for a long time. It's been a welcome distraction when the weight of reconciling the estranged relationship with my family becomes a little too heavy. I'd spent a day trying to organize documents and bank statements at her house. I am not a numbers person. It's not that I'm bad at math. I'm actually pretty good at it. I just don't like it. I tend to zone out, doze off, and lose interest. That makes going through my mom's bank statements, life insurance, and outstanding bills pretty mind-numbing. I'd developed a pretty particular taste in coffee since I began my new life as a journalist. I'm a bit of a coffee snob, not going to sugarcoat it. See what I did there? We have an array of coffee machines in the office with a nearly endless variety of styles to choose from. Journalists run on coffee. My mom had a half-empty can of coffee grounds on the counter. Store brand, probably a bit stale. I remembered being in middle school and asking to try a sip from my mom. Adults were always talking about it, so I assumed it had to be amazing. It wasn't. But I didn't want to admit that I didn't like it, so I acted like I did. I started waking up early and coming downstairs on the weekends and meeting my mom in the kitchen, and we'd share a cup of coffee, often sitting in silence, watching the sun grow higher in the sky, burning off the wispy mists on the side of the foothills. I could have stayed there, waking up every morning and watching those wisps evaporate off the mountains. And I could have learned to be okay with that. But that wasn't me. It'd be like fitting a round peg into a square hole. You can't do it without shaving off the edges. But then it's not a round peg anymore. That's what it would have been like for me. I snapped out of my memory and grabbed a coffee filter out of the cabinet above the sink, where they had always been. I opened the coffee maker to find a fresh filter full of coffee grounds loaded and ready to go. I guess she'd gotten her coffee ready the night before, which is weird because usually she didn't make it until morning. And then I was left thinking about everything else she'd miss. When I arrived at my hotel in Grayson that night, I was mentally exhausted. The attendant at the front desk told me a package had arrived. She pulled out a plastic bag that contained a manila envelope with something inside. It clearly hadn't arrived in the mail. I asked her who left it, and she explained that it had arrived before her shift began. Back in my room, the envelope had my name, Esther Snow, written across the front of it in black permanent marker. There was some weight to the envelope, something bulky inside. I pulled a small book from the package. Not a book, actually. A journal. There was a large yellow sticker across the front cover. Black letters on yellow background reading, EVIDENCE, in all capital letters. Was this Lisa's journal that had been leaked to the Olive Hill Sentinel all those years ago? There were a number of post-it notes sticking out from the pages with handwritten notes, I assume from detectives marking passages of interest. I had an emotional response to holding that journal. 
It reminded me of Philadelphia in 2014 and what became my big break. I was held for questioning in a Philadelphia police precinct. I'd been struggling to make a living on part-time jobs and making silly videos online for a moderate following of about 100,000 people. I was in Philly on a project. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but with the right equipment. That equipment, my camera, sound equipment, my phone, my computer, it became evidence. When I got it back from the police, it was all marked up too with permanent marker. It was covered in stickers with evidence numbers, just like the journal in my hands now. I'd spent the better part of a day being questioned by detective after detective. They wanted to make sure I wasn't a part of what happened. I'm getting ahead of myself. I was sitting on my hotel bed in Grayson, Kentucky, holding Lisa's journal. The actual thing, not the edited one printed in the paper back in 2001. The real, unedited thing. I flipped through it. I felt torn between my desire to learn as much as I could and to tell this story, and the desire to protect the privacy of an 18-year-old girl. A girl violated so much in life and then humiliated and scapegoated in death. I flipped forward to back and then back to front. And when the first page flipped past my thumb and the inside cover was revealed, I realized what I was holding. This wasn't Lisa's journal that was published back in 2001. This was Violet's journal and it wasn't supposed to exist. I needed to do two things. First, I needed to contact the Olive Hill Police Department and report that I'd come into possession of what appeared to be evidence taken from their department. Second, I needed to contact Sheriff Wood and set up a time to discuss this new information. But before any of that, I needed to read, and most importantly, I needed to copy this journal. Okay, we're on. Okay. So last night, someone left a package for me at my hotel. It appears to be Violet's journal taken from the Olive Hill Police Department. Can you confirm that Violet had a journal that was being held as evidence? I cannot. Is that because it wasn't evidence or because you can't talk about it? When you returned it, did they act like it was theirs? Yes. Okay. I read through the journal. The whole thing... Is there anything useful to the investigation in there? Not really. No plans to run off with Lisa. No mentions of mysterious new people in her life. Nothing much of value, really. Why did you keep it then? Well, her parents never came to claim it, and we don't discard evidence from cases that are still open. Then how would someone get access to the journal in order to leak it to me? Well, if I'm correct in the direction you're going, I can go ahead and speed this up. Now, you stop me if I'm headed down the wrong path. Without giving away too much information, there's a storage unit in the lot behind the station. That's no secret. And since it's not a secret, we keep the gate locked up. It's in a fenced lot. There's an eight-foot fence with three rows of barbed wire on top. So, to answer your next question... Unless they discovered a hole in that fence, a member of the Olive Hill Police Department brought that to your hotel room in Grayson. I had suspected that One it was... more thing. Okay. Nobody is dragging up an old piece of evidence from a 15-year-old case for no reason. 
Whoever did this is going to get caught. They're going to get caught, and they know they're going to get caught. There's a camera facing that storage unit, and a cop doesn't keep his job after something like this. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't about the case. This isn't about the past. Something in the writings of a missing teenager 15 years ago matters a great deal to somebody today. This is about the present, not the past. Do you have any idea what that could be? I haven't the foggiest idea. I spent the better part of the following two days reading and rereading, taking in the notes made by the detectives investigating the case back in 2001 and making my own notes. I was struck by how similar Violet's journal was to the transcripts the Sentinel posted from Lisa's. It seemed to me that their childhood friendship would have continued into adolescence if life hadn't interrupted them. They seemed to have been experiencing a lot of the same things. Like Lisa, Violet wrote a lot about not feeling like herself, not feeling like she had a sense of place. She used the same kind of language Lisa used. She feared being found out. I wonder if this was something a lot of my peers experienced. Maybe this town had a way of making you feel disassociated from the world around you. I don't know. Both girls seemed to think of those early years, those summers in the forest, as a sort of golden age of easiness and simplicity. Violet occasionally referred to the fairies in the forest, the game that Anthony mentioned back in episode two. Violet talked about the friends they'd met in the forest. She called them the girls. Most of the journal was a first-person accounting, a record of her thoughts about people and events. But there was one entry that was unique from the others. She wrote several pages in story form from the third person. It had a different feeling than the rest of the entries. It was about two girls who went looking for fairies who lived in the forest. Sound familiar? The girls were friends with the fairies, but there was a problem. They didn't realize that even though they were identical to their forest friends, their friends weren't like them at all. They were something else, something not human. Violet wrote them as villains in the story. In her story, the forest wasn't the carefree place Anthony Bledsoe described in the last episode. It was sinister. The identical girls in the forest were aloof and uncaring. They'd betrayed the girls when the girls went out into the forest to find them, to have the fairies set things right. They'd disappeared. I hadn't known that Violet wrote stories or that she had a creative outlet. I guess it shouldn't surprise me. Most of us have some kind of outlet. Violet's story is over. It seems unnatural to me to discover new facets to an old story. It feels like it's etched in stone and it should stay that way. And yet that's the whole reason I'm here, to uncover something new. There was a lot in the journal that I didn't understand, names and events that I wanted to know more about, so I called the one person who would likely be able to help. Hello? Hey, Anthony, it's Esther. Oh, hey, what's up, Esther? Just a heads up, I'm recording. Is that all right? <laughs> I always assume you are. So I caught a break. Yeah? Yes, a journal that belonged to Violet. It turned up a couple of days ago. 
What do you mean it turned up? Well, it was left at my hotel. You remember Sheriff Wood. He was the sheriff when everything happened. Yeah, I remember him well. It's easy for me to forget today that Anthony was the prime suspect for Violet's disappearance. He spent hours upon hours across an interrogation table with every law enforcement agent in Hamilton County. Sorry, of course. Well, I've been talking to him, too, and he's pretty sure a cop dropped it off to me. They had a journal? Yeah, well, I had to return it, since holding on to police property is technically about 30 different crimes. But I copied it, and I was hoping you could take a look at it and help me out. Add some context behind names and places. Yeah, I didn't know she kept the journal. What all's in there? Um, well, there's a lot about you. Some angsty teenage frustrations, some creative writing. Did she ever show you her fantasy stories? No. When you say fantasy... No, I mean like fairy tale fantasy. Oh, okay, gotcha. No, this is all news to me. Well, she mentioned playing with other kids in the forest. You'd mentioned the three of you, you and Lisa and Violet, so I guess I didn't think to ask you if you all had other friends over. Do you know their names or how I could get in touch with them? Uh, honestly, I don't know who she could have been talking about. She said that there were other kids out there in the forest? Yeah, she doesn't mention names, but she talks about you all playing with other kids out there. Are you sure she wasn't talking about other kids coming to, like, birthday parties or something? No, she was pretty specific about you all being out in the forest. She mentions them several times. Two other girls. I, I don't know what she's talking about. The forest was kind of our thing. Just the three of us. We never took anyone else out there. You're 100% sure? There weren't other kids around that you all met out there? Never. It was too remote. Like I said, it was all protected land. No hikers, no campers. There's nothing out in that part of the forest. And no other kids lived anywhere near it. Hey, you mentioned taking a look at those copies. You think I could come down and look at them, like, tomorrow? Is that too short notice? No, I can get away, at least for the day. Are you staying at your mom's? No, I'm actually in Lexington the next couple days. That's even better. Just text me an address. It's interesting the differences in how Anthony and Violet remember the same events. It's hard to tell what's just a story and what she actually felt and believed about the vast emptiness that lay at the back of her property. I made the drive back to the hotel in Lexington that night. I took the elevator up to my room. Looking out of my hotel window, the city lights spread onto the horizon. I remember when I lived here for those two years in college, before I went to New York on spring break and decided to stay. I started seeing a guy a few weeks before I left. I wonder if he's still in town, out there somewhere in those city lights. I wonder what he thought when he saw that footage in Philly. Did he wonder how that could be the same shy and awkward Esther Snow? I laid back on my hotel bed, relieved that I was a 90-minute drive away from Olive Hill. That forest was starting to creep me out. My mom's house was starting to creep me out. Also, I did not like not knowing who took the time to find out where I was staying, even if it was ostensibly to help. I wouldn't have to wonder long. 
As I dozed off on top of the sheets in my hotel room in Lexington, two police cars pulled up to Ricky Allen's house in Olive Hill, Lisa's boyfriend at the time she disappeared. He was a clerk at the gas station across the street from Lisa's diner back then. Now he was a clerk in the police department. He sat on his front porch. He'd been waiting for it all day. He hadn't tried to hide it. Blue and red lights dancing across the yard. He put out his cigarette and he stepped into the yard to meet his colleagues, the men who would arrest him for leaking the journal to me. This is Olive Hill. Olive Hill is created by Ian Epperson, Brooke Jeanette, Bridget Howard, and Grant Schumer. If you like what you hear and you want to help us get the word out, then stop what you're doing and give us a five-star rating and review us on iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. It helps others find the show, and you can message us and let us know you did, and we'll shower you in praise and gratitude. No joke, we really will. Try it and see. Olive Hill is written and directed by Ian Epperson. The voice of Esther Snow is Brooke Jeanette. Carla Hayes is Bridget Howard. Anthony Bledsoe is Brian Burkhart. The voice of Robert Isaac Wood is Mark Dryden. Dr. Alicia McHammond is Emily Redden. Sound production by Liz Walker. Music by Drew Raleigh. Additional information is listed in the show notes. Olive Hill is a fictional story. The Olive Hill Sentinel is not a real newspaper, but the town is real. You won't find any real-life Mercy and Light members, so if you're driving Interstate 64 in eastern Kentucky, stop in and pay them a visit. Grab a bite to eat, check out Carter Cave State Park, Grayson Lake, and nearby Cave Run. Thanks for listening.